As we come to the word of God, let's bow together, asking the Lord's assistance. Our Father, we come humbly before your word. We know that we do not want to come with boastful hearts. We want to come humbly to hear what you have to say to us. Your word says that it is to the humble and contrite in spirit to, and those who tremble at your word that you will look. Father, continue to shape and change our hearts that we desire above all else to hear you in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure you can remember those times uh, being on the playground as a small child and it was time to play a game and they had to pick teams and lined everybody up. The captains start making their pick and you are there crossing your fingers hoping that you are selected, that you are picked for the team that they happen to see your miraculous catch you made the week prior and they know that you're going to be a valuable addition to their team today. But we, even if it's not on the playground, we all know the desire to be picked for a team. Maybe it's a project at work or uh, something else with your colleagues where you're wanting to be the person who's selected. You want to be a part of that special team. And whenever teams are chosen in this context, there's usually certain criteria that are evaluated, right? There's skills and talent that are taken into consideration about who should fill a team. But what's interesting is that when Jesus chose his team, he was not looking to the typical places of skill and talent. He didn't look to the brightest and best of the culture of his day. He didn't tap on the ones who had the most popularity or who were, had the most business success. He chose his men from among the ordinary people of first century Israel. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. And we're going to see what that means for us today. So I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6, the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse exposition of this Gospel. But before we get to this uh, text in verses 12 through 16 on Jesus choosing his apostles, we need to ask the larger question of why is he choosing these men now? Why didn't he choose them sooner? Why isn't he waiting till later? Well, as we talked about last week, there has been opposition that's been rising against Jesus in the narrative so far. The Pharisees and the religious leaders have been uh, striking out, trying to figure out how to foil Jesus' ministry and sideline him. He's popular. The crowds are flocking to him. They're being healed by him. So the, the miracles are abundant. It, there's no denying that there's something special about Jesus. And all of the people of Israel see that. But the religious leaders are not happy about it. Jesus is the new show in town, and the Pharisees are threatened that their power structure, the power they hold over the people of Israel, is being threatened. The people aren't going to come to him, they're not going to, or come to them, they're not going to listen to their rules and what they say. Jesus is upending the religious system that they know. Jesus said, 
I'm bringing about new wine that can't be put into old wineskins. And he's, in his teaching, again, as we saw last week, he's striking right at the heart of their religious system. This, all of this that the religious leaders and Pharisees had built up around the law. He had accused them of not knowing the word of God, saying, have you not read? Surely you know your Old Testament, which is an offense to them who claim to be teachers of the law. And he exposed them for the heartless men that they were. They don't truly love the very people they claim to be ministering to. They care only about their fastidious observance of the law. And so with this opposition rising and the, the leaders are coalescing together to oppose Jesus, Jesus shifts his ministry strategy to include 12 men who will walk closely with him. He chooses uh, these men because he wants to multiply his ministry. He wants the message to get out that he is the king and that the kingdom is being offered to Israel if they would only but repent and turn to him. And so he needs men that can be messengers on his behalf. But there's something else going on here. He also wants to deepen his ministry. With this opposition rising, Jesus knows that he's not going to be upon this earth forever. He knows that that opposition that's coalescing between the Pharisees and, as Mark says, also with the Herodians, which is another political group, and they joined forces with the religious leaders to oppose Jesus, he knew that this was going to ultimately end in his death. And so he wants to deepen his ministry into a select few so that when he passed from this earth, there would be those who would be able to carry on the mission. He's preparing and training the twelve. He's planning for a time when he will no longer be here. He's getting ready to pass the baton to someone. And so in our passage, we're going to see who these men are. Who is he passing the baton to? So let's read our passage together. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came... He called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Now in this passage... From these verses, we're going to see three attributes that defined Jesus' selection of the 12. How did he go about doing this? What defined the way that he selected these 12 men? We're going to see three attributes that define that. And as we do that, we're going we're to get to know Christ better. We're going to love him more deeply and serve him more wholeheartedly. We're going to see a window into our own selection, into our own choosing by God for salvation. So, first attribute of Jesus' selection of his men is number one, Jesus chose his apostles prayerfully. He chose his apostles prayerfully, and we see this clearly in verse 12. Look at it with me. It says, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now Luke is the only gospel writer to include this verse and include this fact that he prayed all night before the selection of his apostles. And we're thankful that Luke has done that. And it really fits with Luke. Luke is uh, identified as the gospel writer that highlights the prayer life of Jesus. 
He often shows Jesus praying before significant events in Jesus' life, such as Peter's great confession or the transfiguration, the crucifixion, and ultimately his death upon the cross. And so here, verse 12 helps us to see the process Jesus went about to select these 12 men. And isn't it remarkable that even though Jesus is the beloved Son of God, the one who existed in eternity past with the Father and Spirit, the one who shared the glory with the Father, that when he came to earth, he temporarily laid aside that the temporary independent use of his attributes. And so he took on the limitations and the weaknesses of humanity except for the sin. And so therefore we see here the Son of God praying. It almost shocks us every time. Jesus praying? Does he need to pray? But he does. And he doesn't pray for a little bit. Jesus, as we've been saying, has been increasing in popularity. And people from all over were coming to hear him, to, to teach and to wanting to be healed of different diseases that we'll, we'll see next week in the following verses that describe that, of people flocking to him. And so multitudes were pressing in and wanting to hear him, wanting to receive healing. And so in one sense, this is a point of his ministry where his ministry success is at its climax. He's seen his greatest success. It's not just people from Galilee, but it's people from all over that are coming to hear him. And yet, get this, in the midst of his popularity, in the midst of his ministry success, he has two pressing needs. One is to get alone with his heavenly father, and two is to disciple some men who will multiply his ministry. He doesn't just allow the popularity of the multitudes to simply feed and believe that that's enough. He recognizes with clarity of purpose that he needs to commune with the Lord, the, his Father, all the more, and he needs to invest himself specifically and purposefully in 12 men. And so this leads him to withdraw from crowds and to go up to the mountain to pray. And in Jesus' uh, example here, we see much for us to learn from as well. And I first want to point out that Jesus had to say no to good things in order to say yes to the best things. He had to, no doubt, turn down ministry. People, and you'll see this throughout his, his ministry, that he has to say no to people. He has to finally get into a boat and, and, and say, sorry, people, I, I've got to take a break and I've got to move on to something else. He says no to good things in order to say yes to the best things. And so I can imagine as he is starting to walk towards the mountain, the day the sun is setting and he's, and he's recognizing his need to pull away, that there's people there pleading with him, pleading for miracles. They have a child they want healed. They want to hear more of his teaching. And he has to say no, not right now. I think that in this day and age of busyness and frenetic activity, and things in our pockets that can distract us at any moment, that Satan loves to keep the people of God from praying by flooding us with many good things that we can justify to fill our time and fill our days. And so we don't say no to the good things or even the not-so-good things in order to say yes to the best things, such as communing with our Heavenly Father and spending time with Him. Of course, there's always more to be done, more ministry, more conversations, more needs to be met, just as Jesus knows. But what is more needful? 
We must work at spending time with the Lord in prayer. And in order to do so, we'll have to say no to something. We cannot say yes to everything. So I ask you, what is something that maybe you need to say no to in order to get more time with the Heavenly Father? What do you need to put aside, maybe temporarily or, or lay aside permanently so that you can have those quiet moments of solitude with the Lord? Only you can know what that might be or your spouse might be able to provide you some good insight. So Jesus goes up to the mountain because the crowds are not there. He left the crowds behind. He goes up to the mountain. This seems to be following an Old Testament tradition of, of, you think of Moses, right, who went up to Mount Sinai to commune with the Lord and receive the law. You think of Elijah, who also went up to the mountain to speak with God. And so there's this pattern of going up onto the mountain to commune with the Lord. It seemed to be a place of, of intimacy and communion with God. I don't, I don't think it's actually to get closer to the Lord, for the Lord is with us wherever we are, but there's a sense of isolation, of solitude. Now, there's no command in Scripture that would say that we need to follow this to the letter of the law, that we need to go to mountains or we need to go out uh, to places to pray, but I think there is something to be said for getting alone and particularly getting in God's creation for setting aside time with the Lord. It's a place where our souls can set aside distraction if we leave our phones in the car. And uh, it, we, can, we can begin to pray without life clamoring in around us and something to beep or to buzz and pull us away from that communion. It's often easier to find solitude when we're outside. And so I'm not saying that this is, we should uh, practice, do this practice of mindfulness or meditation, which is popular today, even among uh, unbelievers. I'm not just talking about clear, taking a walk to clear your head or to get the blood flowing or to de-stress, but I'm following Jesus' example of going to get alone to pray, to fill our mind with thoughts of the Lord and to commune with him. Communion with God is the goal. We don't need to empty our minds. We need to give our cares to our Heavenly Father because He cares for us. Again, how can you set aside time to get time alone with the Lord? Maybe spouses need to tag team, give each other an opportunity to sit in the backyard quietly, to go on a walk or something of the sort. Pray about how God might enable you to find that time. Well, as we see, Jesus doesn't spend just a few moments or uh, even a few hours, he spends the entire night in prayer. And as the night temperature dropped and he continued to pace or to kneel, we don't know, and as the morning dew dampened his clothes, Jesus continued and continued and continued to pray. We can only surmise what he prayed for, but the context gives us some idea he no doubt enjoyed the communion uh, with his father. He enjoyed glorifying and praising his father for all that he has done, all that he's planned. He enjoyed delighting in all God was to him. Yeah, he, had, he had enjoyed fellowship with the father for eternity past and, and he was continuing to delight in that fellowship. He treasured the relationship he knew he had with the father. He probably confessed a desire similar to that of the Garden of Gethsemane a few years later when he said, not my will, but yours be done. He's surrendered to his father's will. He only wanted to do what his father had called him to do. He said that he came here not to be about his own will, but his father's will, and no doubt that came through in his prayer as well. 
And of course, he brought the need of the hour, as our passage declares. He needed to choose men from amongst his followers. He needed to invest himself in 12 men. These men needed to be the real deal. He couldn't afford to have this whole batch wash out and start over. He needed to be able to, to carry with them to the end. They needed to believe him, to obey him, and to follow him no matter what. And so he asked for God's wisdom in revealing the men the Father wanted him to invest in. This prayer by Jesus indicates that the selection made in the next verse, in verse 13, was as much the Father's choice as it was Jesus's. The Father and the Son together are choosing these men. Jesus is submitted to the Father's will, asking for God to provide wisdom and insight, and therefore the choice is God's. I imagine Jesus praying for many of the men by name, listing off the men who have been with him and followed him, saying, Lord, is it this one? Father, do you want this one? He had a pool from which to, to choose from, and probably many showed promise, but he needed to know the right ones, the ones the Father wanted to be with his son. And so on the night, similar to uh, on the night before the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father, John 17, verse 6. He said this, he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. What I want you to see here is that Jesus recognized that these apostles, these 12 men, were the fathers, and they were given to the Son, and Jesus kept them and trained them and taught them. Yours they were, you gave them to me. Jesus here now as he's selecting these men and saying, Father, who are you giving to me? So Jesus prays that God would reveal his selection to Jesus. And in this, Jesus set an example that the early church followed in terms of praying before making significant decisions, especially leadership in missionary decisions. In Acts chapter 6, the, the needs of the church for providing food for widows was overwhelming and the apostles couldn't handle it all. They said, we need to set aside some men to handle that need because we need to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And so before they made that selection, they prayed. Or you think of Acts chapter 13, the first missionaries are sent out. And what do they do? They spend time praying and fasting that God, through the Spirit, would help to, to set aside who he wants. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. There's a, a need to set elders in different churches, and they want the Lord's will in setting up those elders in those local churches. And so what do they do? They pray, asking that God would reveal who he wants. And so we must seek our God at all times, especially before significant decisions and actions. Many aspects of life and ministry should drive us to our knees. We want to see God's glory on display. We want him to be treasured by all people. We recognize that life is short. Eternity could be a moment away for anyone. People's souls are at stake, and we need to act wisely and urgently, and so we go to God in prayer. We must seek the face of God and plead for clarity and for boldness in all that we have to do. And this is why we pray as a church. It's why we prayed at 9 a.m. this morning. This is why the elders pray whenever we gather. We're seeking the Lord's will that he would guide our fellowship. He would guide Foothill, that we would be glorifying to him and do exactly as he wants. This applies to our family decisions as well. We're all faced with many decisions that oftentimes even have impact on generations to come about where we're gonna live, about uh, churches we're gonna be a part of, and we need to be asking God's will. We need to be bringing those decisions to God in prayer. 
as we learn from Jesus' example here. So the first attribute that we learn about Jesus' selection of his 12 apostles is that he did it prayerfully. But the second attribute we see in this text is that Jesus chose his apostles purposefully. Purposefully in verse 13. Look at it with me. It says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. The sun has come up, and now he needs to act. He's prayed for hours. That was the time of preparation, but now is the time for action. And it's clear that what he does here in verse 13 is a direct result of what he did in verse 12, which is to pray. He prays, he seeks the Lord, and then he acts. And he's, this one verse has three verbs to describe what Jesus did. First is that he called. He called. He called the disciples to himself. Now, the, the gospel writers often call the 12 men that we're going to look at here in a moment the 12 disciples, and we often speak that way, and that's accurate to, to say that. But it also uses the term disciples to refer to a broader group. When we say the disciples, and I believe the disciples here, it's not just talking about the 12 because he's going to say that out of this group of disciples, he's going to select 12. So therefore, there's a bigger pool of people that he's choosing from. These are people that Jesus had either called and said, come follow me, or they had simply heard about Jesus and wanted to follow him. That was the habit of the day. If you wanted to follow a rabbi and be discipled by a rabbi, you were the one that made the selection. You would go and put yourself under a rabbi, and so many were doing that to Jesus. They had abandoned what they were doing, and they went and started traveling with him, listening to him teach. Within this group, though, there were different levels of commitment. Some were interested, but were still only checking him out, listening to hear what he had to say. In fact, we hear of this group that were on the line uh, in John, uh, John chapter 6, where in verse 66 it says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now you go, wait, some of the 12? No, none of the 12 turned back at this point. This is, this is some of that larger group of disciples who were on the fence about Jesus. But there were others in this large group that were very committed. And they stayed with Jesus until the end, even though they were not selected as the 12. Right? I mean, think, uh, we're going to look a little bit later in Acts chapter 1 where Judas Iscariot, uh, the one who had betrayed Jesus, has committed suicide and they want to replace Judas and they actually have two men that they identify as having been with Jesus and with the disciples since Jesus' baptism until that present day, which tells you that there's a group of men that continue to follow Jesus even though they weren't counted among the 12. In Luke chapter 8, we read of others, women who were disciples and following Jesus. Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it says, And also with him were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. These women followed Jesus, and they provided for their ministry out of their means, and we see some of these same women going to the tomb after Jesus has been crucified. They remained faithful to Jesus all the way through. But on, here in Luke chapter 6, on this mountainside, after a night of prayer, he calls this group of followers to himself. And then he selects from this larger group a group of 12 men 
And he and the Father make their will known who Jesus' assistants are going to be. And here we see the second action, right? He, he called his disciples, verse 13, and chose from them 12. He chose. This word chose means to select or elect. And it's the same word used throughout the New Testament for God's divine election of sinners. Mark chapter 13, verse 20, talks about God choosing the elect. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says that Christians have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so, friends, as we read this text of Jesus selecting the 12 to be unto himself, we're reminded of our own selection. We're reminded of God's choosing of us, that out of the mass of humanity, he has chosen for us to know salvation and to know Christ. God has selected us. God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, before you and I were born, before you and I could make any decisions of our own, God had made a decision. And so just as the 12 experienced the joy of being selected as Jesus' apostles, you and I can know the joy of being selected as children of God. Think about John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man but of God. God makes a selection. God is the one that gives birth to us spiritually, gives us new life. Notice that that new life does not come about as the will of the flesh. We can't create that new life. That is only the result of the sovereign God creating that new life within us. And so he has chosen us before the foundation of the world and then in real time he gives us spiritual life when it's his will and therefore we, he gave, gives us the right to become children of God. These men here experienced the privilege of being apostles. We all can know the privilege of being children of God. And so believer, rejoice in God's election of you this morning. Recognize what Jesus has done for you. Praise him for his grace. He has selected us, and we praise him for it. But notice also, he, he calls the disciples to himself. He chooses from them 12, and then look at the last action, last verb here in verse 13, whom he named apostles. So he, he calls, he chooses, and then he names. He names them apostles. Now, apostle is simply a word that is transliterated from the Greek the Greek word apostolos, and we simply, as it's been converted down to other languages and, and comes down to us today as apostle. And it simply means a messenger or a sent one, someone who is sent on the behalf of another. And in the New Testament, it's used in a few verses in a broad sense to simply mean a messenger. And we don't have time to look at these, uh, these instances individually, but uh, you can write down John 13, verse 16, uh, Philippians 2.25 and 2 Corinthians 8.23 all speak of this idea of apostle and is often translated messenger actually in those verses that there is someone who is a messenger who is sent out representing the churches. But predominantly in the New Testament, the term apostle is used to refer to a specific group of men who had the honored position of being Christ's representatives. An apostle was one who had the full authority of the one who sent them. 
In other words, the authority of the messenger was equal to that of the sender. This idea was rooted in Judaism. A Jewish literature in the Mishnah puts it this way. It says, the one sent by the man is as the man himself. In other words, that ambassador or that messenger is physically and formally representing the sender. We, in our, today, we uh, think of, maybe you could help you to think of a modern analogy of uh, someone who has the power of attorney, right? Someone who can act on behalf of, the, of another. They have that specific power and authority to make decisions on behalf of that other person. So when Jesus designated and named these men apostles, again, verse 13 says he named them apostles. He was identifying them as his representatives who would act on his behalf and who would carry the same authority as himself. And all this was significant in light of the authority that we've already seen through the book of Luke. Remember, Jesus had authority to heal to have authority over sickness. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law of a, of a high fever. People who had sicknesses, he came and he healed them. He had, he had authority over demons and evil spirits. Those who were, who were possessed by demons, Jesus cast them out. And we saw last week, Jesus has authority over the law to interpret the law and to understand what God meant in that former time. And so this authority was now being granted to these men. They were his representatives. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus here only names them apostles. They are not sent out yet until later. Luke chapter 9, he will actually send them out as apostles. Here, they're simply named as apostles. The a, a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10 is where Matthew lists the 12 apostles is the scene in which he sends them out. Here, Luke lists them when he names them and he will talk about their sending later. So now they have the role of apostle. Later, they will fulfill that role and exercise their apostleship. Now, apart from Judas Iscariot, all these men will go on to be the foundation of the church, as is clear from the book of Acts. Jesus commissions his disciples, and we've looked at that in the last few weeks here, right? The great commission that Jesus gave his apostles and got passed on to his church, that these men are to go into all the world with the gospel. They are to build the church with the gospel. And it's through these men that God channels his revelation to the church. These men or their associates wrote the New Testament. The Spirit came and taught them all that was needed about Christ. And so we have the New Testament because of Christ's apostles. Now, apart from the 12 men listed here, there are only two others, I believe, who filled this specific role of apostle. Two others. First, let's think about the requirements to be an apostle. Could anybody just name, be an apostle? Could someone say, hey, Jesus, I want to join? Well, we get, by putting the passages together, we get there's at least two requirements to be an apostle. The first is they needed to have seen the resurrected Jesus. They needed to have seen the resurrected Lord with their physical eyes. Not in some sort of, of spiritual vision that they just saw in their head or a dream. They need to actually physically see the Lord. And secondly, they needed to be personally commissioned or chosen by Jesus. Here we see these 12 are personally chosen and commissioned by uh, Jesus. But we also see this 
uh, take place in, uh, in Acts chapter 1. In fact, I want you to turn there. Acts chapter 1. This is an important passage for seeing how these apostles understood the role of apostle after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Jesus, their master, goes up into heaven and they're left looking up and then left looking at each other and going, okay, now what? And they got to decide what they're going to do as a group of disciples. Acts chapter 1, look in verse 12. Then they, this is after the ascension, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldema, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the beget baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas and who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So, what I want you to see here is this is the process, the amount of narrative space that's given to talk about who's going to fill the space left by Judas. And notice the requirements. They've got to be someone who's been with Jesus and has been a, is a witness to the resurrection, verse 22. And uh, they're recognizing that that this is the Lord's selection. We want to know whom you have chosen to fill this spot. Thereby, we see these qualifications. Now, so Matthias is the other one who has also na been named biblically above uh, the original 12. Matthias is also added because of Judas's apostasy. But there's one other that's named to this rank, right? One untimely born, as you said, and that is the apostle Paul the one known well to us. In Galatians and in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes his salvation and his apostolic commission by the Lord. And he distinctly says that he was not commissioned by any man, that it was not the apostles that got together and sent him. It was the Lord himself came to him and commissioned Paul to go and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And all that he says and he claims fits well with the narrative we find in the book of Acts. Now, some 
theologians and commentators will include other people in what are named these official apostles, such as Barnabas and Silas, and they'd include them in this similar rank with the apostles. And there, there's reasons for doing those. So there's certain verses that seem to indicate that. But upon uh, studying it further, I believe that these others, while they might have been named an apostle at a certain point, that word simply means messenger, that they were sent out from a church and they did not fill the specific role of being appointed by Jesus, having seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord with the physical eyes, and therefore they did not hold the same office as the 12 plus Paul. But the point we need to see in all of this is that Paul saw himself as the last apostle, the last apostle. And this is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is recounting the gospel, this, this, this uh, gospel message that is given and handed down to everybody, to the church. What is that gospel message that needs to be believed? Well, it includes not only the truth about Jesus being crucified and buried and resurrected, but it includes truth about who Jesus appeared to. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And look at this, verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was the last one to see the resurrected Jesus. He saw him on the road to Damascus when he was converted. Acts chapter 9, the Lord stopped him dead in his tracks. He saw the resurrected Lord, and he was commissioned by Jesus. And so since an apostle needed to see Jesus with his physical eyes, there is no other opportunities for anyone else to fit the criteria to be an apostle. J Paul was the last one. And so friends, the point of this, of all of this, is this, that there have not been any apostles upon this earth since the death of John the Apostle in the late first century, roughly AD 98. When the Apostle John died of old age on the Isle of Patmos, there have, has not been another apostle upon this earth. No one else can meet the qualifications of seeing the Lord physically and being appointed by the Lord personally. And yet there are many Christians today who believe that apostles are still around. In fact, believing that the health of the church is by raising up more apostles. In fact, a whole segment of Christianity today is called the New Apostolic Reformation, believing that there is a new reformation in our day of apostles being raised up. They claim to believe in the five-fold ministries listed in Ephesians chapter 4, where it lists apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And they say all these offices need to be expressed today. And yet, earlier in Ephesians, that was Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2, Paul says that the, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, making extremely clear that the foundation only needs to be laid once. When you're building the house, you don't lay the foundation time and time again. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation in that first century, and the church has been built on them ever since is a one-time first-century era. And after that, the, apostle, the gift of apostleship went away. And so in all of this, we need to be discerning. We need to know what our Bibles say. We need to know how to respond when someone claims that there are still apostles today or that they are apostle or following an apostle. There are no apostles today. There 
are, were, they were a unique group of men in the first century appointed and commissioned by Christ. The church is now led by elders, as the New Testament makes very clear. Paul, didn't appoint, did, Paul did not appoint apostles in all the churches he planted. That would have been extremely clear if that's what he wanted if, to, to proliferate apostles, but he doesn't. He sets up elders. That's what we believe the scriptures say. So, back in Luke 6, we see that Jesus chose his apostles prayerfully. We chose them purposefully with a specific mission in mind, a clear purpose for them to be his representatives. And thirdly, we'll see this morning, Jesus chose his apostles prudently. And by this, I simply mean wisely. He knew what he was doing. Jesus knew the men that he was selecting. And it's verses uh, 14 through 16 here in Luke chapter 6 that we're introduced to these men. And as we already read in Acts chapter 1, there's other lists of these apostles. We read it in Luke 6, then we read it in, in Acts chapter 1. Matthew 10 also has a list, and Mark chapter 3 has a list. There's four lists of the apostles. And while there's some differences between those lists, there are some patterns that are identifiable. For example, the names seem to be arranged in three groups of four names each. In each of these lists, the same man heads each of these groups. Group one, Peter heads the list. Group two, Philip heads the list. And in group three, James, son of Alphaeus, heads the list. And from these groups, starting with Peter and Andrew, James and John, on down, there seems to be a certain amount of decreasing intimacy with Christ, that these were the ones who were closest to the Lord and then those who didn't get as much time with him. So who did Jesus choose? Well, let's look in verse 14. It says, first, you can just imagine this group of these disciples are all around, and Jesus, his first pick for his team, says, Simon, whom he called Peter. In all the lists, Peter's name heads the list. And here we see an example of a phenomenon we'll see throughout this list is that a lot of the disciples have two names. And that's why we can sometimes get confused by who, who these men are. Simon Peter. Peter's a name that Jesus gave him. It seems to be that when the name Simon is used, it's a rebuke or a hearkening back. Simon, you're, 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 uh, he says, get behind me, Simon, right? You you're, you're, seem to be walking in the flesh. You're walking in your old ways. But when he talks about uh, Peter and his role in the church, he uses the name Peter. John chapter 1 describes Jesus giving him this name, Peter. And we see throughout the New Testament that Peter is indeed the spokesman for the group. He seems to be the main leader and preacher, and he is also the one whom Jesus spends the most time with. He rebukes the hardest. He rebukes Peter the hardest. But he also gives some of the highest praise to Peter as well. Jesus is preparing him to be a leader, to help to plow forward even after he's gone. Second on the list is Peter's brother, Andrew. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They both hailed from Bethsaida, John chapter 1 tells us, but he seemed, they seem to have moved to Capernaum, Mark chapter 1. As we know, Peter uh, has a house there, we've already seen in Luke, where he's got his house, his mother-in-law was there, so there seems to be some sort of permanent uh, move that took place. But think of Andrew. For being, as high, for being related to such a high-profile man as Peter, it's remarkable how little is said about him. In fact, here in Luke 6, in the list we read in Acts chapter 1, is the only place Luke mentions him. 
It's only mentioned twice, and it's in a list. We learn some more from, from John. Uh, and in fact, in, in those two vignettes, he's leading people to Jesus. He, he went and got Peter, actually. Andrew followed Jesus first and said, hey, Peter, we found the Messiah. Let's come follow him. And then in, in uh, John chapter 12, there's some Greeks that want to see Jesus, and Andrew helps bringing them to Jesus as well. And so Peter, or Andrew rather, is the brother of a high-profile leader, and he is content to follow Jesus in his own way, recognizing his role, and played it well. And, you know, there's no indication that he was ever jealous of his brother. How easily would the flesh rise up in such a circumstance and say, why didn't Jesus choose me to have more of a prominent role? But he, we get no indication of that. Next, rounding out this next group of four is the two brothers, James and John. James and John. These are the sons of Zebedee, as Luke 5.10 tells us. Mark 3 says that Jesus calls them th sons of thunder, which could be because of their impetuous uh, personalities. And they worked with Peter and Andrew in the fishing business in Sea of Galilee. But as Luke 5 said, as we saw a while ago, they left everything and followed Jesus when Jesus called them. Interestingly, and I learned this new uh, just recently, that these brothers were most likely cousins of Jesus because their mother was Salome, who was Mary's sister. And you've got to do a little bit of a, of a hunt and find in your New Testament comparing John 19.25 with Matthew 27.56 with Mark 15.40. You compare all, all those verses and those names and you can start pairing uh, people who had multiple names and see uh, the relationships there. But they're uh, and I believe this explains why we read that gospel account, right, of James and John and his, their mother going to Jesus, asking Jesus to give a privileged place to James and John. This is Jesus' aunt asking for, come on, nephew, you can kind of give it to your cousins, can't you? But Jesus correctly sets them straight. She believed she had an in. And while these brothers, James and John, were called to Christ in similar circumstances, they're on the, they're on the ocean, uh, the Sea of Galilee, they're fishing. They, their lives did not end in similar circumstances. In fact, they hold the unique role of James being the first apostle to die, and John holds the privilege of being the last apostle to die. James was martyred by Herod Agrippa I in the early 40s AD. As Acts chapter 12 t tells us, he was put to death there. And then John, as we've mentioned, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and lived to the very end of the first century. And he, the, John wrote the Gospel of John, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation because of his long life. God used him in that way. And so we see here in these two brothers, in God's wise providence, he chose for them to have different ministries of different lengths, and yet the Lord used them both mightily. The fifth name on the list, and first in the second group, is Philip. Philip. We know Philip was from Bethsaida as well and thus probably knew Peter and Andrew before following Christ. And after he met Christ, he went and found Nathanael and introduced him to Christ as well in John, or John chapter 1. Not much is known about Philip. He's often portrayed uh, in the Gospels as a rather typical disciple who is often struggling to understand what Jesus is doing. Why, Lord? Why are you doing that? How are you going to do that? I don't understand. And Philip's just kind of probably voicing what a lot of the other disciples are thinking as well. Sixth, Jesus chooses and calls out Bartholomew. Not much is known about this man, but scholars believe that he is the same 
man mentioned in John's gospel as Nathaniel. Don't have time to go into the details of that, but essentially John mentions Nathaniel as one, a follower of Jesus, uh, both at the beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel, but never mentions Bartholomew. On the flip side, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, never mention Nathaniel, but mention Bartholomew. This is a good guess that they were the same man, and again, showing apostles who had two names, Simon Peter, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, and we'll see more of that even here in the seventh one, the next one, Jesus called out Matthew. Matthew, we've seen Matthew before in, Matthew, in chapter, Luke chapter 5. He's also known as Levi. He was a tax collector, a Jewish man who worked for Rome. But once he committed his life to Christ, he joyfully held an extravagant banquet so that his friends and associates could meet Jesus themselves. Now, because of Matthew's prior occupation, his inclusion in Jesus' group of 12 highlights the grace that permeates Jesus' selection. He doesn't turn aside anybody, even if they have a checkered past like Levi, like Matthew. He took in a social outcast and forever gave him a privileged position. In fact, the, all these apostles will have a privileged position because their names are written on the heavenly Jerusalem, as uh, Revelation 21 22 tell us. Eighth, Jesus chose Thomas, also known as Didymus. Both of those names mean twin. We don't know who his twin was, whether it was a boy or a girl. We just know he's a twin. And he's seen only a few times in the gospel, obviously most well-known for his doubting Thomas incident after the resurrection. But church history tells us he went on to have a great ministry as well. The ninth man Jesus calls, heading up the last group of four, is Simon, son of Alphaeus, and we know virtually nothing about him uh, we just know he was included in this list of 12 and heard and followed Jesus. The 10th man is Simon the Zealot. This is the second Simon in the group, right? We had Simon Peter. Now we have Simon the Zealot. A zealot, uh, the word zealot, actually we have in English, comes from the Greek word, which, which is simply zelotes, right? And it kind of gets, just like apostle, kind of gets moved into English and we use the word zealot to describe it. Someone who's passionate about a cause, earnestly committed to a cause. But in, in the first century, it referred to those who were ultra-nationalist. They were political, and they were, they were pro-Israel in the deepest way, so that they were very against Rome. Rome was occupying Israel at the time. The zealots hated that. In fact, they'd even stage opposition campaigns against Israel, attacking Roman soldiers. It seems that Simon was affiliated with this group. He had a love for his country and a hatred for Rome. And so think about it. Matthew, the tax collector, the one who worked for Rome, and Simon, the zealot, who hated Rome and worked, did all he could to fight against Rome, Jesus brings them together. The transformation that Jesus brings is a, is a, is a, is a shadow of what will happen in the church in this one new man as the Jews and Gentiles come together and all hostility is broken apart and we can be united together in Christ. Lastly, Jesus chose two Judases. The first Judas was the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. In Matthew's list and Mark's list, he's known as Thaddeus. Here he's called Judas, the son of James. And in John 14, he's called Judas, not Iscariot. I'm sure he had to live that down, right? <laughs> I'm Judas, not Iscariot, right? Uh, first century. Hi, I'm Judas. Wait, what? So Judas, not Iscariot. John was cleared to make sure that uh, he got his place. But this brings us then to that last man on the list, right? Judas Iscariot, who, look what, at the very end of 16, Luke notes, who became a traitor, who became a traitor. 
which seems to indicate to me that he did, definitely did not start out a, a, a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Uh, he, he seemed to be a passionate, committed follower of Jesus. In fact, even up to the very end, right, in the upper room, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they all look around and say, is it me, is it me? They didn't all point the finger and go, yeah, it's Judas. I sensed him from day one. No, he, he was a true hypocrite. He could put on a face, and yet inside he was rotten to the core. He became a traitor. Iscariot means, probably means a man from Kirioth, which is a town in Judah, which means that Judas is the only non-Galilean. All these men came from the north part of Israel. Judas seems to be the only man to come from the south from Judah. Now, as we pull back, as we finish this morning, pull back and just look at this group, right? Twelve men that Jesus chose. As we started, we, we said that these, Jesus didn't pull from the brightest and the best. These are ordinary men. He, these are not of the elite of society. These are the, the blue-collar workers of Israel, and Jesus chose them to pass the baton to. They were not the most educated. They were not the most, the, the richest he chose unremarkable average men whom he was going to train, whom he was going to disciple and equip to go out and do extraordinary things in his name. These were the men that Jesus wanted to pour into. He wanted, and, and as he did that, as he discipled them, as he trained them and he sent them out, they, they went out and turned the world upside down. They became representatives of Christ. And it's because of their faithfulness Note that you and I are here today hearing the word of God and loving Christ because humanly speaking, they obeyed the commission that Christ gave them to go out and to preach the gospel. And so as was the case with the apostles, Jesus chose ordinary people, so it is with all people called to salvation. Salvation is not limited to just the elite of society, just those who have an in. But ordinary people like you and me are able to receive salvation in Jesus. We are able to be lifted to a privileged status as sons and daughters of God. According to worldly standards, we aren't the richest. We aren't the most beautiful. We aren't the smartest. We aren't the most powerful. But when we trust in Jesus for our salvation from the eternal wrath that we deserve for our sin, in him we are counted righteous. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. And because we are united to the king of kings, in the end, it will be shown that we are on the right side of history. Because history is God's story. And he's bringing it all according to his purposes. And folks, do you not see the, God's love and grace in this? That he would select and choose ordinary people like us. We who have deserved eternal punishment. We have received the privilege of being welcomed into God's family. This is what John wanted us to see. In 1 John 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That we should be called children of God, the love of God extended to us. And well, let me just end with this. If you're here today, you're listening to me, and you do not know Christ, you know you're not a child of God, this gospel is available to you as well. Again, it's open to everyone, to all classes of society, all people. All you need to do is to go to Jesus, confess your sin to him, and confess him as Lord, and you will find salvation, the scriptures promise. And you will find, as you go to Jesus, that just as Jesus welcomed these men with open arms, he'll welcome you 
and you'll find the privileged status of being a son and daughter of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Oh God, we ask that you would enable this account of the choosing of Christ's apostles to sit upon our hearts and help us to treasure the salvation that you offer to us, the privileged status that we have to be ambassadors for you, to be messengers of your holy word. Father, may you help us to carry on our task and to pass the baton faithfully as well. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.